Section 35 of Fabiola by Nicholas Patrick Cardinal Wiseman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Part Second Conflict. Chapter 16. The Wolf in the Fold. After the adventures of the night, our youth had not much time for rest. Long before daybreak, the Christians had to be up and assemble at their several titles so as to disperse before day. It was to be their last meeting there. The oratories were to be closed, and divine worship had to begin, from that day, in the subterranean churches of the cemeteries. It could not, indeed, be expected that all would be able to travel with safety, even on the Sunday, some miles beyond the gate. A great privilege was consequently granted to the faithful at such times of trouble, that of reserving the Blessed Sacrament in their houses, and communicating themselves privately in the morning before taking other food, as Tertullian expresses it. The faithful felt, not as sheep going to the slaughter, not as criminals preparing for execution, but as soldiers arming for fight. Their weapons, their food, their strength, their courage were all to be found in their Lord's table. Even the lukewarm and the timid gathered fresh spirit from the bread of life. In churches, as yet may be seen in the cemeteries, were chairs placed for the penitentiaries, before whom the sinner knelt and confessed his sins and received absolution in moments like this the penitential code was relaxed and the terms of public expiation shortened and the whole night had been occupied by the zealous clergy in preparing their flocks for too many their last public communion on earth we need not remind our readers that the office then performed was essentially and in many details the same as they daily witness at the catholic altar not only was it considered, as now, to be the sacrifice of our Lord's body and blood, not only were the oblation, the consecration, the communion alike, but many of the prayers were identical, so that the Catholic hearing them recited, and still more the priest reciting them, in the same language as the Roman Church of the Catacombs spoke, may feel himself in active and living communion with the martyrs who celebrated, and the martyrs who assisted at, those sublime mysteries. On the occasion which we are describing, when the time came for giving the kiss of peace, a genuine embrace of brotherly love, sobs could be heard and burst of tears, for it was too many a parting salutation. Many a youth clung to his father's neck, scarcely knowing whether that day might not sever them, till they waved their palm branches together in heaven. And how would mothers press their daughters to their bosom, in the fervor of that new love which fear of long separation enkindled? Then came the communion more solemn than usual, more devout, more hushed to stillness. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, said the priest to each, as he offered him the sacred food. Amen, replied the receiver, with thrilling accents of faith and love. Then extending in his hand an ovarium, or white linen cloth, he received in it provision of the bread of life, sufficient to last him until some future feast. This was most carefully and reverently folded and laid in the bosom, wrapped up often in another and more precious covering, or even placed in the gold locket. It was now that, for the first time, poor Sarah regretted the loss of her rich embroidered scarf, which had long before been given to the poor, had she not studiously reserved it for such an occasion, and such a use. Nor had her mistress been able to prevail upon her to accept any objects of value, without a stipulation that she might dispose of them as she liked, that was, in charitable gifts. The various assemblies had broken up before the discovery of the violated edict, but they may rather be said to have adjourned to the cemeteries. 
the frequent meetings of Tricatus and his two heathen confederates in the baths of Caracalla had been narrowly watched by the Capsarius and his wife, as we have already remarked, and Victoria had overheard the plot to make an inroad into the cemetery of Callistus on the day after publication. The Christians, therefore, considered themselves safer the first day, and took advantage of the circumstance to inaugurate, by solemn offices, the churches of the catacombs, which, after some years' disuse, had been put into good repair and order by the fossors, had been in some places repainted and furnished with all requisites for divine worship. But Corvinus, after getting over his first dismay, and having as speedily as possible another, though not so grand, a copy of the edict affixed, began better to see the dismal probabilities of serious consequences from the wrath of his imperial master. The Dacian was right. He would have to answer for the loss. He felt it necessary to do something that very day, which might wipe off the disgrace he had incurred before again meeting the emperor's look. He determined to anticipate the attack on the cemetery, intended for the following day. He repaired, therefore, while it was still early, to the baths where Fulvius, ever jealously watched over Tercatus, kept him in expectation of Corvinus's coming to hold counsel with them. The worthy trio concerted their plans. Corvinus, guided by the reluctant apostate, at the head of a chosen band of soldiers, who were at his disposal, had to make an incursion into the cemetery of Callistus, and drive or drag thence the clergy and principal Christians, while Fulvius, remaining outside with another company, would intercept them and cut off all retreat, securing the most important prizes, and especially the pontiff and superior clergy, whom his visit to the ordination would enable him to recognize. This was his plan. That fools, he said to himself, act the part of ferrets in the warren. I will be the sportsman outside. In the meantime, Victoria overheard sufficient to make her very busy dusting and cleaning. In the retired room where they were consulting, without appearing to listen, she told all to Cucumio, and he, after much scratching of his head, hit upon a notable plan for conveying the discovered information to the proper quarter. Sebastian, after his early attendance on divine worship, unable from his duties at the palace to do more, had proceeded according to almost universal custom to the baths, to invigorate his limbs by their healthy refreshment, and also to remove from himself the suspicion which his absence on that morning might have excited. While he was thus engaged, the old Capsararius, as he had himself rattingly called in his anti-posthumous inscription, wrote on a slip of parchment all that his wife had heard about the intention of an immediate assault, and of getting possession of the holy pontiff's person. This he fastened with a pin or needle to the inside of Sebastian's tunic, of which he had charge, as he durst not speak to him in the presence of others. The officer, after his bath, went into the hall where the events of the morning were being discussed, and where Fulvius was waiting, till Corvinus should tell him that all was ready. Upon going out, disgusted, he felt himself, as he walked, pricked by something on his chest. He examined his garments and found the paper. It was written in about as elegant a latinity as Cucumio's epitaph, but he made it out sufficiently to consider it necessary for him to turn his steps towards the Via Appia instead of the Palatine and convey the important information to the Christians assembled in the cemetery. Having, however, found a fleeter and surer messenger than himself and the poor blind girl, who would not attract the same attention, he stopped her, gave her the note, after adding a few words to it with the pen and ink which he carried, and bade her bear it, as speedily as possible, to its destination. But, in fact, 
he had hardly left the baths when fulvius received information that corvinus and his troop were by that time hastening across the fields so as to avoid suspicion towards the appointed spot he mounted his horse immediately and went along the high road while the christian soldier in a byway was instructing his blind messenger when we accompanied diogenes and his party through the catacombs we stopped short of the subterranean church because severus would not let it be betrayed to Dorcatus. in this the christian congregation was now assembled under its chief pastor it was constructed on the principle common to all such excavations for we can hardly call them edifices the reader may imagine two of the cubicula or chambers which we have before described placed one on each side of a gallery or passage so that their doors or rather wide entrances are opposite one another at the end of one will be found an archosolum or altar tomb and the probable conjecture is that in this division the men under the care of the ostiari and in the other the women under the care of the deaconesses were assembled this division of the sexes at divine worship was a matter of jealous discipline in the early church often these subterranean churches were not devoid of architectural decoration the walls especially near the altar were plastered and painted and half columns with their bases and capitals not ungracefully cut out of the sandstone divided the different parts or ornamented the entrances in one instance indeed in the chief basilica yet discovered in the cemetery of callistus there is a chamber without any altar communicating with the church by means of a funnel-shaped opening piercing the earthen wall here some twelve feet thick and entering the chamber which is at a lower level at the height of five or six feet in a slanting direction so that all that was spoken in the church could be heard yet nothing that was done there could be seen by those assembled in the chamber this is very naturally supposed to have been the place reserved for the class of public penitents called audientes or hearers and for the catechumens not yet initiated by baptism the basilica in which the christians were assembled when sebastian sent his message was like the one discovered in the cemetery of st agnes each of the two divisions was double that is consisted of two large chambers slightly separated by half columns in what we may call the women's church and by flat pilasters in the men's one of these services having in it a small niche for an image or lamp but the most remarkable feature of this basilica is a further prolongation of the structure so as to give it a chancel or presbytery this is about the size of half each other division from which it is separated by two columns against the wall as well as by its lesser height after the manner of modern chancels for while each portion of each division has first a lofty arched tomb in its wall and four or five tiers of graves above it the elevation of the chancel is not much greater than that of those archosolia or altar tombs at the end of the chancel against the middle of the wall is a chair with back and arms cut out of the solid stone and from each side proceeds a stone bench which thus occupies the end and two sides of the chancel as the table of the arched tomb behind the chair is higher than the back of the throne and as this is immovable it is clear that the divine mysteries could not have been celebrated upon it a portable altar must therefore have been placed before the throne in an isolated position in the middle of the sanctuary and this tradition tells us was the wooden altar of st peter we have thus the exact arrangement to be found in the churches built after the peace and yet to be seen in all the ancient basilicas in rome the episcopal chair in the centre of the apse the presbytery or seat for the clergy on either hand 
and the altar between the throne and the people. The early Christians thus anticipated underground, or rather gave the principles which directed the forms of ecclesiastical architecture. It was in such a basilica, then, that we are to imagine the faithful assembled, when Corvinus and his satellites arrived at the entrance of the cemetery. This was the way which Torquatus knew, leading down by steps from a half-ruinous building, choked up with faggots. They found the coast clear, and immediately made their arrangements. Fulvius, with one body of ten or twelve men, lurked to guard the entrance, and seize all who attempted to come out or go in. Corvinus, with Torquatus and a smaller body of eight, prepared to descend. "'I don't like this underground work,' said an old, grey-bearded legionary. "'I am a soldier, and not a rat-catcher. Bring me my man into the light of day, and I will fight him hand to hand, and foot to foot. But I have no love for being stifled or poisoned, like vermin in a drain.' This speech found favour with the soldiers. One said, "'There may be hundreds of these skulking Christians down there, and we are little more than half a dozen. This is not the sort of work we receive our pay for, added another. It's their sorceries I care for, continued the third, and not their valor. It required all the eloquence of Fulvius to screw up their resolution. He assured them there was nothing to fear, that the cowardly Christians would run before them like hares, and that they would find more gold and silver in the church than a year's pay would give them. Thus encouraged, they went groping down to the bottom of the stairs, and could distinguish lamps at intervals, stretching into the gloomy length before them. "'Hush!' said one. "'Listen to that voice!' From far away its accents came, softened by distance, but they were the notes of a fresh, youthful voice, that quailed not with fear, so clear that their words could be caught, as it intoned the following verses. "'Dominus illuminatio mea, et salus mea!' Quim mebo, Dominus protector vitae me, aqua trepidabo. Then came a full chorus of voices singing, like the sound of many waters. Dum appropriant supermenocentes, ut edent carnes meas, qui tribulant me, in the mici mei, ipsi infirmati, sunt et cetiderunt. A mixture of shame and anger seized on the assailants as they heard these words of calm confidence and defiance. The single voice again sang forth, but in apparently fainter accents. Si consistant adversum mecestra, non timibit cor meum. I thought I knew that voice, Mother Corvinus. I ought to know it out of a thousand. It is that of my bane, the cause of all last night's curse and this day's trouble. It is that of Pancratius, who pulled down the edict. On, on, my men, any reward for him, dead or alive. But stop said one, let us light our torches. Hark, said a second, while they were engaged in this operation, what is that strange noise, as of scratching and hammering at a distance? I have heard it for some time. And look, added a third, the distant lights have disappeared, and the music has ceased. We are certainly discovered. No danger, said Tercatus, putting on a boldness which he did not feel, that noise only comes from those old moles, Diogenes and his sons, busy preparing graves for the Christians we shall seize. Torquatus had in vain advised the troop not to bring torches, but to provide themselves with such lamps as we see Diogenes represented carrying in his picture, or waxen tapers, which he had brought for himself. But the men swore they would not go down without plenty of light, 
and such means for it as could not be put out by a draught of wind or a stroke on the arm the effects were soon obvious as they advanced silently and cautiously along the low narrow gallery the resinous torches crackled and hissed with a fierce glare which heated and annoyed them while a volume of thick pitchy smoke from each rolled downwards on to the bearers from the roof half stifled them and made a dense atmosphere of cloud around themselves which effectually dimmed their light torquatus kept at the head of the party counting every turning right and left as he had noted them though he found every mark which he had made carefully removed he was staggered and balked when after having counted little more than half the proper number he found the road completely blocked up the fact was that keener eyes than he was aware he had been on the lookout severus had never relaxed his watchfulness determined not to be surprised he was near the entrance to the cemetery below when the soldiers reached it above and he ran forward at once to the place where the sand had been prepared for closing the road near which his brother and several other stout workmen were stationed in case of danger in a moment with that silence and rapidity to which they were trained they set to work lustily shoveling the sand across the narrow and low corridor from each side while well-directed blows of the pick brought from the low roof behind huge flakes of sandstone which closed up the opening behind this barrier they stood hardly suppressing a laugh as they heard their enemies through its loose separation their work it was which had been heard and which had screened up the lights and deadened the song Tercotus's perplexity was not diminished by the volley of oaths and imprecations and the threats of violence which were showered upon him for a fool or a traitor stay one moment i entreat you he said it is possible i have mistaken my reckoning i know the right term by a remarkable tomb a few yards within it i will just step into one or two of the last corridors and see with these words he ran back to the next gallery on the left advanced a few paces and totally disappeared though his companions had followed him to the very mouth of the gallery they could not see how this happened it appeared like witchcraft in which they were quite ready to believe his light in himself seemed to have vanished at once we will have no more of this work they said either torquatus is a traitor or he has been carried off by magic worried heated in the close atmosphere almost inflamed by their lights begrimed blinded and choked by the pitchy smoke crestfallen and disheartened they turned back and since their road led straight to the entrance they flung away their blazing torches into the side galleries one here and one there as they passed by to get rid of them when they looked back it seemed as if a triumphal illumination was kindling up the very atmosphere of the gloomy corridor from the mouths of the various caverns came forth a fiery light which turned the dull sandstone into a bright crimson while the volumes of smoke above hung like amber clouds along the whole gallery the sealed tombs receiving the unusual reflection on their yellow tiles or marble slabs appeared covered with golden or silver plates set in the red damask of the walls it looked like a homage paid to martyrdom by the very furies of the heathenism on the first day of persecution the torches which they had kindled to destroy only served to shed brightness on monuments of that virtue which had never failed to save the church but before these foiled hounds with drooping heads had reached the entrance they recoiled before the sight of a singular apparition at first they thought they had caught a glimpse of daylight but they soon perceived it was a glimmering of a lamp this was held steadily by an upright immovable figure 
which thus received its light upon itself. It was clothed in a dark dress, so as to resemble one of those bronze statues, which have the head and extremities of white marble, and startle one, when first seen, so like are they to living forms. "'Who can it be? What is it?' the men whispered to one another. "'A sorceress,' replied one. "'The genius Lukchi observed another. "'A spirit,' suggested a third. Still, as they approached stealthily towards it, it did not appear conscious of their presence. There was no speculation in its eyes. It remained unmoved and unscarred. At length, two got sufficiently near to seize the figure by its arms. "'Who are you?' asked Corvinus in a rage. "'A Christian,' answered Cecilia, with her usual cheerful gentleness. "'Bring her along,' he commanded. "'Someone, at least, shall pay for our disappointment.' End of section 35